All right, as we turn to God's Word together, uh, would you join me in Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1. Uh, as I said, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 38. Luke chapter 1. Uh, we'll continue through Luke 1 and 2 over the next several weeks here together. Let me pray before we look at God's Word now. Father God, we do ask that you would help us to uh, see Jesus to see his glory and his majesty as the eternal son of God, even in the pronouncement of his birth. We pray that you would help us to uh, see the examples in this passage and to respond in faith to you and your word. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Two, four, six, eight. All right. Very good. Thank you. Uh, when I was in school, I loved patterns and, and maybe you remember these, right? So two, four, six, eight, and then there would be two blanks and you'd have to put 10, 12, right? You'd have to complete the pattern. And I always liked the ones that were a little harder, right? So see if you can follow along with me here. Five, 10, 14, 17. It'd be 1920, right? Very good. You can think about that one later. If you're... But I, I love those kind of things. And I love the figuring it out because you, you should know if you have the right answer. Hopefully, you know, I mean, I figured out the pattern, whether it's addition or subtraction or something much more uh, complicated. I, I like the idea of saying, OK, knowing what I know, what should I anticipate? What is the pattern that I need to recognize? Is there a pattern? Can I figure it out? When we, when we come to numbers, that's, that's good and fine. We come to songs, that's good and fine. It's actually true in stories. There's patterns that we are supposed to recognize. The Bible is, is one single grand story of redemption, but then it has these little stories that are advancing the plot, if you will, and following certain patterns. We want to see the patterns, but we want to see them so that we can anticipate what comes, what comes next. So later biblical authors are looking back at patterns established by earlier biblical authors and referring to them and building on them. Every few years, I go to the eye doctor uh, to renew my prescription. I always don't look forward to it. Uh, I don't like people touching my eyes or getting close to my eyes. I'm not a hitter. But I, the, the eye doctor, if anyone ever gets slugged by me, it will be the eye doctor for sure. Let me just put this probe and it gets closer and closer. And I'm just like, oh, man, I just get, it's so hard. And, but, you know, the eye chart, right? You know, you put your chin here, rest your forehead here. And then they begin the which is better, this or that? The first one or the second one? And one year, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I don't know if I was in a hurry. I just answered and the prescription I got was worse. So now I am definitely the guy that says, can you do that again? You know, can you slow down? Can I see? Can I see a again? All right. Don't go back to B. Okay. Well, here's what. And I just start talking. Right. I just want them to know what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing, which is better. This or this a or B, this or that. Right. Uh, we're used to this. Again, the Bible stories do this. Uh, they invite us to ask that same question, which is better, this or that patterns don't just repeat 
but they actually escalate. So last week's sermon was a great example of this, right? So we, it's not just, oh, okay, we're coming to the, the book of Hebrews and we have another priest and, oh, look, we have another sacrifice and, oh, wow, more blood. It's like, no, there's anticipation. There's escalation. It's getting, it's getting better, right? Jesus is better is the message of the book of Hebrews. There's, there's repeated patterns that we want to see, but there's also escalation. Say, okay, which is better? This or this? This or this? Pattern recognition and this idea of escalation, are, I think, are key as we come to the Christmas story. It's a familiar story. I'm not going to be able to show you a lot of things you probably haven't seen before. But we want to come into it with these reading tools, with the, with the patterns of Scripture, God's patterns inspired and given to us in the back of our minds to help us read it better. So the good news concerning Jesus, as told to us here by Luke, doesn't begin with, hmm, it doesn't begin with Jesus, does it? Not his birth, but John, John's birth. And so we surprisingly start not with Jesus's parents, but with John's parents. I began reading earlier in verse 26, but our passage begins back in verse five. We have in Luke chapter one, really two surprising angelic announcements. We have two announcements regarding two miraculous births of two great men that are brought to two God-fearing Israelites. So Luke is inviting us to compare and contrast. To compare and contrast. But, of course, the patterns we need to see when we come to Luke 1 don't just begin with comparing, okay, John's announcement and Jesus' announcement, or John the Baptist and Jesus the Son of God. It actually begins in the Old Testament. It begins in the beginning in the book of Genesis. I want to read with you the first part of Luke 1. And I want you to be asking the question, where have we seen this before? What's the pattern that Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is wanting us to call to mind as as readers? So pick up with me in verse 5. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, who was, uh, there was a priest named Zechariah. Of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So, we've seen this before, haven't we? A believing and righteous man who with his wife is old and unable to have children. It seems the, the point here is, is emphasized, right? Elizabeth is barren. Look, look down at verse 36. Elizabeth is in her old age. And then notice the end of verse 36, still in Luke 1. Of her who was called barren. So Elizabeth isn't just someone who's kind of struggling with infertility. Elizabeth is someone who cannot have children, and that was an identifier of her. She's called barren. Think of the the shame that she was enduring. 
righteous man. He and his wife are older. Barrenness. Thinking of a pattern. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on uh, the right side of the altar of incense. So this is Zechariah's big day. He's been waiting his turn. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for him to enter the holy place and burn the incense. There was 24 of these divisions and he was the division of Abijah and he was up for service. He was chosen for this duty. This would have been a rare opportunity. Even though it happened every day, there would have been a big enough pool that this would have been a rare opportunity. And Incense is burning. People are outside praying. He comes in and then an angel appears. Now, what's the pattern that we might be thinking of? Well, I think of Abraham and Sarah. And the appearance of the angel seems to confirm this. But then I should ask, okay, if this angel that had just appeared to this older man whose wife is barren, if this angel says you're going to have a son, then I'm, there's some further confirmation, don't you think? Right? Let, let's see what the messenger of the Lord has to say to this older couple in their barrenness. Verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw it and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Of course, that's something that the Lord said to Abraham. In Genesis 15, do not be afraid. Okay, there's another point of pattern. Let's see what the angel has to say, though. Continuing in verse 13, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? The pattern continues. You think, okay, all right, all right, I got something here. I got Abraham and Sarah believe God counted to them as righteousness. They're barren. They're longing for a child. And then a messenger of the Lord comes and promises them a child. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Abraham's told not to fear. Now, Zechariah is told not to fear. This amazing prediction comes regarding her son. It stands out, doesn't it? He's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? John will be great. That's going to be said to Mary about Jesus in just a minute. The pattern is going to continue, isn't it? He's going to abstain from wine and strong drink. He's going to be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. He's going to turn many Israelites back to God. Clearly, this man is God's chosen one. He's prepared for his specific task. 
calling people to repentance, to make them ready for the Lord. He's going to go before uh, him, whoever the him is, we don't know yet, in the spirit and power of Elijah. We think of Isaiah 40 in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then the angel quotes scripture, at least alludes to the last verses of Malachi. Like Elijah, John will bring the renewal through God's mighty acts amongst his people. So the idea is God is at work again, very clearly. And Gabriel wants Zechariah to know it. The word is repeated, turn, right? Turn. There'll be a turning that happens. There will be repentance so that there may be reconciliation. The prophecy about this found again at the end of our Old Testaments actually led some Jews to think maybe Elijah's coming back. Maybe he will reappear. There's a consistent impression that would be given. John here is special. Something unusual is happening about this great man that the Lord is promising to Zechariah. He's going to be significant in God's plan. But there's one who's coming who's going to be more significant. So if, if Abraham and Sarah, as we're kind of reading along, aware of our Old Testament, thinking about pattern recognition, we're reading along. If Abraham and Sarah are the pattern, do you think Zechariah is going to trust God for a son? Or not? Will he respond in unbelief? Well, Abraham and Sarah didn't trust God, at least not initially for a son, right? They tried to kind of bring it about their own way. Will Zechariah trust God? That's what is being built. That's the question we should be feeling and asking. Will he trust the Lord? Our pattern recognition lights are going off, and so we're intrigued. How is this guy going to respond? After all these years, the pattern of Genesis is being brought back up. Interesting. We're anticipating he might not. Trust the Lord. That's the anticipation. Let's keep reading in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He asks, okay, but how? This is, I would say, understandable. Right? How is this going to happen? Let's keep reading. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. In short, this is from God. (laughs) That's what that means. This is God talking to you. This is God's message to you. Look at verse 20 now, though. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Here's why you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. The pattern continues, right? This is what we thought he would do. This is what happens, right? Even good people who trust God, when given a promise, specifically regarding barrenness in old age about a coming son, they don't trust God, right? They struggle with that. They, they, they struggle. They don't respond rightly. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. Remember, he's inside. But then he comes out and he's unable to speak. And they realize he's seen a vision in the temple. Vision is what's described, how it's described when uh, Abraham is 
communicating with the Lord in Genesis. He kept making signs to them. He remained mute. And when the time of his service ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when the Lord looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Interestingly, the fact that she actually got pregnant is the least surprising thing, right? It's like, oh, okay, we, we thought that might happen, and, and here it has, it has happened. If you, uh, if you think about, again, righteous person, obedient to God's word, that may describe you. But even sometimes people like that may not believe, may struggle to believe. So there's a warning, believe God's word. But there's also an encouragement, brothers and sisters, my fellow believers. There may be times where it is hard to trust God. There may be times when you as a believer struggle with doubting God. Isn't that fascinating, right? So this isn't the end of the story. When you think of Zechariah, you shouldn't think, oh, that doubter. When you think of Abraham, how is he described in the New Testament? But as a man of faith. So when you struggle as a believer to trust God, to trust his word, to trust his way in your life at times, be encouraged. You actually find yourself in a long line of people whose struggles at times were not the defining word over their lives. Praise God. Right? Zechariah is an example of a man of faith for us. And yet here he followed the pattern. He struggled to believe. He's told fear not. God's going to give him a son. He doubts and yet God still gives him a son. Just like Isaac moved the story forward, so John is going to bring a new chapter in God's story of redemption. Something significant is happening here. Just like God did with Abraham and Isaac. He's about to restart the story, we might say. But how? How is he going to do it? That's where we're at in the story. Let's keep reading verse 26. Six months later, same angel comes back, but this time up north, this time to another person, a young girl named Mary. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he said to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. When Gabriel shows up, it's not always like, yes, I want. No, there was fear, right? Like, okay, okay. What kind of message am I about to get? God had used Gabriel before to to come and deliver a message and to confront even. So her response is understandable. Now listen to what the Lord calls her to in verse 30. Luke chapter 1 verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then here it is. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name 
Jesus. Because we've been reading and noticing some patterns, we, we have some, some things already on our mind, don't we? Like, okay, we, we recognize patterns when we, when we see them. How is she going to respond? Is she going to trust God? Or is she going to be like Abraham? Or is she going to be like Zechariah? Is she going to doubt? How is this this individual going to respond to this surprising announcement regarding this miraculous birth? Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So she also asked how the same question that Zechariah asked back in verse 18. So we again are asking, okay, has the pattern continued? Is she really trusting God? Well, we find out. That unlike Zechariah's earlier reaction, Mary doesn't have a lack of faith. There's some uncertainty regarding how. Wow, the means of fulfillment. How could this be possible? It's the difference between how will that happen and will that happen. You see the difference? It, it, the, the tone, I think, is something like this. I can't wait to see how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. But it's not like... Are you going to do it? It's like, I can't wait to see how you're going to do it. She's inquisitive. She's uncertain. But she's not doubting. She's trusting the Lord. Gabriel reassures her about the nature of this virgin birth, giving her a sign. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And then here's the sign. Well, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Right. So impossibles already happen. She's showing there's the sign impossible is going to happen again. So there's been a pattern of the Lord's provision through a miraculous birth. And yet this is of a different kind. Something unique is happening here. Look back up to verse 35. It's interesting that the language ties uh, the role of the Holy Spirit to the holiness of the child. There seems to be some connection there. He was born fully God and fully man. Yet he didn't inherit a sinful nature And disposition from Adam, like you and I do, like everyone else has. Jesus, we know, consistent throughout Scripture, never sinned. He was not a sinner. He knew no sin. He was without sin. He committed no sin. In him there was no sin. That's Paul and the author of Hebrews and Peter and John, all making those statements so clearly. The angel's final words to Jesus are important, and we need to note them there in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. What an encouragement. For nothing will be impossible with God. So interesting, as I was reflecting on this, I think the angel is kind of quoting the Lord as a messenger of the Lord. Because remember the question that God asked to Abraham. Abraham's processing the promise. And the Lord said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. Genesis eighteen fourteen. So the banner over God's promise 
to Zechariah and now to Mary is this. Nothing will be impossible for God. God's reassurance, I can do anything. There's nothing too hard for me. This is how one author put it. God is not limited by our limitations, discouraged by our discouragements, hindered by our shortcomings. He is sovereign over all. In the hands uh, of a tyrant such as Herod, which we'll see, this kind of power could be terrifying and devastating. But when combined with his faithful love and care for his creation and image bearers, it fills us with peace. And comfort, no matter the circumstances. Mary had all sorts of uncertainty, but she knew her God and she trusted her God. She didn't understand how his ways were going to work themselves out, but she trusted in his character, which leads to our first of two lessons. Lesson number one, if you're taking notes, this is the closest thing to points we have this morning. Lesson number one, imitate Mary's faith. Now, as Protestants and as Baptists, this makes us uncomfortable. Just because some people and some denominations have gotten teaching about Mary wrong doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't want to teach us about Mary. And we should get some things right. And she is such a beautiful example of faithfulness here. Mary breaks the pattern and trusts God. Do you see that? She breaks the pattern and trusts God. She doesn't doubt the seemingly impossibility of God's promises. She submits to God's word. Notice her response in verse 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's a model for us to follow. This is an example of her discipleship, right? Submission to God, his promises, his word. Everything in her life is about to change. She doesn't know what it all means. How, she couldn't explain it to Joseph at this point, let alone her family, let alone others. There's a ton of unknowns. And yet she chooses, I'm going to submit to God's word. I can trust him. I can trust his plan in the midst of uncertainty, seeming disasters. I saw something like this online recently, and I thought, oh, that's, that's right. That's descriptive of Mary. Some, some days in your life and in my life, God takes out a a red Sharpie and just marks, we'll explain later. Right? Like, I don't know. But the question is, will we trust him? His character never changes. His ways may seem uncertain, but his character never changes. Will we trust him? Will we submit to him and his word? As we'll see next week as well, there's nothing here suggesting that we should pray to Mary or that Mary gives grace from heaven, but she is an example of complete commitment to the Lord and obedience to the Lord, submission to the Lord and his will and ways. So because we have pattern recognition on our minds, we see Mary's faithfulness in bright letters as she breaks the pattern and doesn't doubt and trust the Lord's provision in the face of a surprising announcement. She's a virgin, right? Regarding a son. She trusted God and trusted his word. She committed herself to him, to his plan, no matter the uncertainty, no matter the cost, no matter even the shame. Through the angel's announcement, Elizabeth's shame was actually going to be taken away. We see that very clearly. 
back in verse 25. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that Mary's shame was just beginning. She said, let it be according to your word. What an example we should imitate. Lesson number two, trust Mary's greater son. Trust Mary's greater son. Look back at verse 32 and verse 33. You may have seen that we skipped over it. Angel still speaking to Mary. Luke 1 verse 32. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Like John, Jesus will be great. The same word is used in both passages. Unlike John, Jesus isn't a messenger. He is the message. Think about the contrast. Think about the escalation. So we're made to compare and contrast. And scripture is saying, which is better, this or that? This or that? And the clear implication of the text is, Jesus is better. He is the son of the most high. He is the Messiah. He's not just a good teacher or a good teacher whose teaching we repeat to our day. No, he is more than that. He was the message that John brought. So when we preach Jesus, we're not just repeating what he taught. We're preaching him. He is the son of the most high. Look at verse 32. This is a description that we first read again back in Genesis chapter 14, describing Yahweh himself. Repeated in the Psalms over and over. An absolute statement of his supremacy and sovereignty. He is the Davidic king, unlike David and any of David's ascendants. He's uniquely sovereign, just like the father, the most high. Note the contrast that is made here with, with John down in verse 72 or 76. If you flip to the end of the chapter, verse 76. John is the prophet of the Most High, but Jesus is the Son of the Most High. Verse 33, back in our passage, Jesus is the promised successor to the throne of David. If we turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'd have this description of the promised Son of David. The promise of greatness, interestingly, of a throne, Davidic king, perpetual nature of his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be sure, uh, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Back in 2 Samuel 7, that promise is made and you think, okay, David's going to have a son who has a son who has a son forever. Or there's going to be a son who lives forever. It's the only two ways. And here the angel says, Jesus, son of Mary, will be that son, that forever king, the Davidic king promised all those years for ago. And he will reign forever. There will be no end. Think of Isaiah 9 of the increase of his government of peace. There will be no end. This time forth and forevermore. An everlasting dominion shall not pass away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. Look down at verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. 
The fulfillment of all that God promised is found in Jesus. God makes promises and he keeps them and he does it again here. He knows not only the future, but he controls it. Even the details of these births, he controls it all. Why? To accomplish his purposes. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is working out his purposes in saving the lost? Do you believe that God is working out his purposes even in our day in drawing sinners to himself and moving towards those who are weak and lowly, to those who are least and despised? Something that's just striking in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 as you read over it these next few weeks and as you anticipate Christmas with us is that the most significant people in that day are insignificant in the narrative. And the most significant people in the narrative are nobodies from Nowhereville. Right? Like, they, they, they are nobody. Kings, rulers, pawns. Pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. But Mary, up north in Nazareth, that's how the Lord has worked. That, that's who he's going to exalt. So, let me ask you this. How are you responding to the good news about Jesus. Are you trusting in Mary's greater son? It's interesting that we come into the Christmas story. We come into these stories, these accounts, this bit of history, and we, we realize how familiar it is. You know, I was trying to tell the story with a little bit of suspense, but you already know where it was heading, right? It's difficult. We know them so well. But faith in Mary's greater son isn't just knowing the story. Yeah, no, I, I know the story or or even believing that the story actually happened. Like I affirm the historicity of it. Like I think this really did happen. Other side of the world 2000 years ago. That's not nearly enough. Simply saying, you know what? I think I think it happened. I think it was really good that it happened. I'm like, yay, Jesus. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pro Jesus here. That's not good enough. Right. Faith in the Bible isn't just knowledge or assent agreement. It's personal trust. It's, it involves you, 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 friends, you. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you responding to God's revelation regarding his son by saying, yes, I need a savior. Yes, I'm in darkness. I need to be brought into the light. I believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world. And I believe he is my savior. The story has been told, and it's a classic preacher's story, but it is a true story uh, of a man about 100 years ago who was going to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. They used to allow these kind of things. I don't think you could get permits for that anymore. Lawsuits would be too high. But they stretched the tightrope across the top of Niagara Falls, and this man was going to go across. And he was known for doing these, these excavates, these stunts. And he was going to uh, push a, a wheelbarrow. So you can get the picture, right? The wheelbarrow, he's got to keep it lined up. He's going to push it, and he's going to balance with his wheelbarrow, crossing. Uh, and, and one of the reporters says to him, Sir, I know you can do it. You're world famous. I, I, I believe you can do this. You know, I'm excited to see it. I'll be there. And he says, if you believe I can do it, you've got to get in the wheelbarrow. And I think some of you are, are just happy to be here, being like, I'm pro-Jesus. 
I think what he did is significant, happened, all for it. And Jesus is saying, will you trust me? Personal trust, not just knowledge, not just mental assent, not just kind of general agreement. Will you trust me with your life? But of course, all of that supposes something, doesn't it? That there's some sort of risk that you need to be saved from. Friends, the good news of the Bible starts with the bad news that we're sinners, that we're fallen, that we need a savior, that we can celebrate Christmas because we needed what God sent. He sent himself to be the savior of the world, to rescue us, to rescue me, to rescue you from your sins. So will you get in the wheelbarrow? Will you trust in Christ yourself this morning? It's not something fancy you need to do. You need to just ask the Lord, will you save me? I believe. I repent. I trust in you. Thank you for coming for me, dying for me, rescuing me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust in you. The good news of Christmas, friends, isn't just that something happened or even that it changed the world. And it did. But that it can save you. That good news matters for your life and for mine. In just a minute, I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to sing. A little different than normal. We're going to sing. And as we sing, we're going to be preparing to gather around the Lord's table. This is an opportunity for us to remember Jesus. To trust again in Mary's greater son. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the example of Mary in our passage that she broke the pattern of doubt, that she received news of the seemingly impossible and believed. Father, we pray that you would help us to be those who have Mary-like faith in your greater or in her greater son. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to rescue us from our sin and our shame, that we might have life in his name. So we pray that you give us joy as we respond now in song and as we gather around the table of remembrance. Father, we pray that you would help us to see not only the patterns that point to Jesus, but how they escalate and culminate in him. In whose name we pray. Amen.